You're listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. Bridges is a house church movement meeting in homes all across Music City. To find a house church near you or to find other ways to support or get involved, go to bridgesnashville.com. In Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables, we are introduced to Jean Valjean, a man who's been in prison for 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And when released on parole, he can't secure work or find lodging as he's rejected over and over again because of his past. Until he encounters the local priest with an open door who invites him to dine and rest at the church. Despite the unmerited grace and radical hospitality of the priest, Jean Valjean responds from the pain and trauma he has endured. And in an attempt to redeem what is left of his life and start anew, he steals the silver from the church and runs away in the middle of the night. He doesn't make it far before he's captured, dragged back to the church, and dropped at the feet of the priest. Everyone knew he was guilty. Jean Valjean, his captors, and the priest. And only one word from the priest to confirm what everyone already knew would send Valjean back to prison for the rest of his life. But to everyone's shock, the priest states that he had given Valjean the silver and then gently reprimands him for leaving so quickly and for leaving the best behind. The priest then took two silver candlesticks, gave them to Valjean, thanked the policemen for doing their duty, but assured them that Valjean was innocent and owed no debt. When the police left, the priest knelt down to face the bewildered and confused Valjean and encouraged him to live a new life. In the musical version, the priest stands before him and says, but remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. And then as a representative of Jesus, the priest declares, by the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. Hey, Bridges Nashville, my name is Heather Zempel. I'm one of the pastors at National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and I'm so glad to be able to be with you today. I think this is the third time I've been with you online, so I'm really looking forward to the day that I can be back in Nashville in person with you in House Church or at the Listening Room Cafe or just at Martin's for some good barbecue. We at NCC love you. We love your pastors, and we are in your corner cheering you on. Today, I'm so excited to continue the Jesus Is series. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God? Because that's going to change everything about your perspective. One of the things I like to do when I read my Bible is to underline or highlight or somehow mark every time I come across a name or attribute of God. Because then when I open to those pages of Scripture, the the character of God comes screaming off the pages at me. Now, already in this series, we've learned that Jesus' salvation, 
He's the one who seeks and saves lost things. He, he saves us from our sins. He saves us from the storms. And he saves us from hopelessness. We've learned that Jesus is shepherd. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd who provides, protects, and leads. And then last weekend, Jesus is the light of the world. He brings definition and clarity. He shows direction and the way to go, and he brings life. And today, we're going to continue with Jesus is Redeemer like the priest in Les Miserables, the one who stands between us and our past, between us and our circumstances, between us and our accusers, and between us and the enemy. And he says, move on. This debt has been paid. This is actually one of the earliest things we learn about God from the story of scriptures. We find God as redeemer in the most ancient parts of scripture. Most scholars believe that the events of Job occurred sometime between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, and that it was the first book of the Bible written. That book explores the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? And in Job 19.25, right in the middle of the book, right in the middle of unimaginable suffering, Job declares, I know that my Redeemer lives. Many centuries later, as Jesus hung on a Roman cross, bearing the sin and shame and suffering of the world, he declared, it is finished. Now, in our Bibles, it's the Greek word tetelestai, meaning complete, fulfilled, paid in full. Receipts in the Roman world used that word to declare that a debt had been completely paid. When Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished, he wasn't announcing that his life was over. He wasn't stating that he had completed the task he had been given. He was declaring the debt was paid in full. Tetelestai, redemption is here. The Redeemer buys back, purchases, settles the debt, pays in full. And the redemption of Jesus does not merely settle the debt. He pays back in abundance. See, Jean Valjean was forgiven for what he had stolen, and then he was granted even more than he had taken. God restored Job double what he had lost. Jesus' death and resurrection not only gives us life, it gives us life abundantly. The redemption that Jesus offers is layered and kaleidoscopic. He redeems our failures, he redeems our circumstances, and he redeems our future. First, Jesus redeems our failures. As followers of Jesus, we enter into a rich lineage of screwed up people. Uh, Jacob's name meant swindler and deceiver, and he lived right down to it. But God changed his name to Israel, meaning God provides. Rahab was the owner of a brothel, but God delivered her and put her in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew and Zacchaeus were tax collectors, traitors to their own people. 
But Jesus went to dinner in their homes and made them part of his mission. Simon was a loudmouthed, opinionated, brazen fisherman. But Jesus renamed him Peter, made him the rock on which he would build his church. Every single one of these saints had a past. Every saint has a past. But every sinner has a promise and a potential for a future. Moving people from shame to salvation is one of the most prominent story arcs we find in Scripture. It goes all the way back to the beginning in the garden when tragedy struck. And the man and the woman crossed the one guardrail God gave to them and found themselves in shame and isolation. And God sacrificed an animal to cover their nakedness and move them from hiding in sin to standing in salvation. Death gave way to life. Sacrifice removed the shame. Throughout the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. It was the pathway God had established to move them from shame to salvation, and it was a foreshadowing of the work, the redeeming work that Jesus would do on the cross. The writer of Hebrews would later connect the death of Jesus on the cross to the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. We read in Hebrews 9, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus himself became the final, ultimate, perfect day of atonement for us. He took all of our sin and gave us all his righteousness. To Tetelestai, paid in full. Redemption moves us from shame to salvation. Your failure does not define you. No failure is final or fatal. Failure, in fact, is the proving grounds for God's grace. It doesn't matter what you've done or how far you've gone. His grace is bigger and better. His grace is bigger than your biggest sin. His grace is bigger than your worst failure. Grace knows no limits. If anyone had found the limits to the grace of redemption, it would have been Peter. Peter denied his rabbi. When Jesus' life was on the line, Peter denied even knowing him three times. In first century Judaism, for a disciple to publicly disassociate himself from their rabbi was unheard of. And according to the cultural norms, it disqualified him. He was out. He was no longer considered a follower of Jesus. And that's why on the morning of the resurrection, the angels told the women, go tell the disciples and Peter 
That's why Peter went back to fishing even after the resurrection. Because based on all reasonable assumptions, he no longer had a spot on the team. So he went back to his previous profession. That's why Jesus specifically came to Peter, made him breakfast on the beach, and reinstated the relationship. No failure is too far for grace. One of the longest stories Jesus shared was about the prodigal son. He lived in the extravagance and abundance of the father's blessing, but that he squandered it in reckless living. And when he hit rock bottom and decided the only place he could turn was back to his father, he walked home with his head down and his tail tucked between his legs. When the father saw him, the father ran to embrace him and threw him a party. When we practice repentance, we discover redemption. And repentance doesn't mean being really, really sorry for something. It doesn't mean working up enough sorrow to trigger God's pity. It doesn't mean wishing hard enough you hadn't done something to earn God's mercy. It just means turning around and going the other way. It's turning around and going back to the Father. It's really about going home. Jesus redeems our failures. Now, Jesus also redeems our circumstances. Last week, Jamia talked about Jesus as the light of the world. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. In the Hebrew, it was simply two words, light be. One of the discoveries of the Hubble telescope is that the universe is still expanding today which means that the first command of God was so powerful that the universe is still obeying it. The creator is still creating. And then if we turn all the way to the end, to Revelation 21.5, we hear God saying, I am making everything new. The creator is still creating. He's still making all things new. He is redeeming your circumstances. Now we talked about the story arc of shame to salvation, but there are two other story arcs we see weaved through the pages of scripture. One is the story of bondage to liberation. The clearest example we see of this story is in the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus. The people of God were enslaved in Egypt. Their lives were not their own. They were forced to produce for someone else. They were in captivity and bondage to an oppressive system. But God raised up a deliverer named Moses. And after an epic showdown with the gods of Egypt, the people of God escaped slavery in Egypt and were led to the promised land. It's a story of bondage to liberation, a life of captivity to a life of freedom. In Luke 4.18, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, opens the Isaiah scroll, and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
You know, the first time Jesus stood up to declare publicly who he was and what he was about, that's what he said. To proclaim freedom, to restore sight, to release the oppressed, to proclaim favor. It's so fascinating to me that the first time Jesus declared his purpose and mission in the world, it was actually not about the cross or sin. As important as that is, as we've already seen. But in that moment, he declared his mission was about freedom. It was about delivering people from the things that enslaved them. Jesus came to free us. To free us from the things that keep us living in fear and insecurity, from unbreakable habits and hurts, to bring us freedom. Whatever trial, tragedy, or trauma has weakened you, whatever hurt, habit, or hang-up has trapped you, the resurrected Jesus offers you a life of freedom. And he'll redeem your story. Jesus will turn your test into a testimony. He will turn your scars into stories of grace because redemption changes the narrative. The other big story is exile to restoration. It's a story about reconciliation and reunion. Now, we see this story in the Old Testament most clearly in the exile of the people of God to Babylon, where they lived in exile for 70 years. Uh, they're separated from their home. They're separated from their community. They're living in exile, longing for the day that they will be reconciled and restored in relationship to God, to their land, and to their community. And we see a smaller version of that story during the time of Judges in the life of Ruth. She was a Moabite woman married to an Israelite. And when her husband, her father-in-law, and her brother-in-law died, her life seemed like it was at a dead end. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, urged her to go back to her own family. But Ruth declared that she was devoted to Naomi. She would go where Naomi went and commit herself to Naomi's community. Ruth found herself in a foreign land as an alien and a widow. She was amongst the most vulnerable of the community. But the story of Ruth gives us a beautiful picture of redemption as the kinsman redeemer Boaz steps in to give Ruth a new life, new meaning, new relationships, new purpose. And like Boaz, when Jesus stepped onto the scene of human history, he looked for the outsider. He saw those that were on the margins and restored dignity to the forgotten and the overlooked. He touched the lepers. He showed honor to women. He praised the widow. He shared meals with tax collectors and made the Samaritan the hero of the story. Jesus saw people and brought them into relationship. And as Jesus hung on the cross, naked before the whole world in incomprehensible agony. He looked down at his mother and the disciple John, and he said, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. In a moment of unimaginably excruciating pain, Jesus wanted to ensure that those he loved the most were connected to one another and cared for.
Jesus redeems our relationships. He moves us from exile to restoration, from isolation to intimacy. He restores relationship vertically between us and God, and he restores relationship horizontally between us, between one another. He heals broken relationships. He places the lonely in families. He draws near to the marginalized. He moves us from exile to restoration, from isolation to intimacy, from separation to connection. Finally, Jesus redeems our future. The word to telestai has both a present orientation and a future orientation. You have been redeemed and you are being redeemed. You are saved and you are being saved. Your past, present, and future are secured in the love and grace of Jesus. I want to invite you to experience redemption today. It's actually much better experience than explained. If you're here today and you feel that your failures have disqualified you, if you're here today and feel enslaved, whether by your own decisions or the pain inflicted on you by someone else, if you feel alone, isolated, disconnected, Jesus offers you repentance today, redemption today, and repentance is what happens when we decide it's time to stop running, turn around, and come home and meet Jesus at the foot of the cross. He's waiting for you. Not only with a receipt that declares paid in full, not just with forgiveness, but with abundant life, salvation, freedom, and restoration. Would you come to the cross and experience his redemption today and then run to the empty tomb to experience the abundant life that the Redeemer has for you? Thanks for listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. To stay up to date on everything going on at Bridges, you can find us online at facebook.com slash Bridges Nashville or at Bridges Nashville on Instagram.